Welcome to the Brain Health and Beyond podcast with your hosts, Aisha and Dean Sherzai. We're so glad to be back. We've missed you all. And Dean and I are sitting in our living room and so excited to connect with you all again. Happy New Year. Hope everybody's doing well. Well, as well as can be. It's been quite an interesting year and we're very optimistic and very fortunate to be here at this time and speak with you and hope for better days ahead. So we're going to start by recapping last year, the obvious things and also how it applies to neuroscience and brain health and and, and beyond, which is the manifestation of all of that. And also kind of look into the future, 2021, which we think is going to be an amazing new year, both as far as neuroscience and as far as brain health and how it applies to communities and, and everyone around us. We're very excited. As you will hear, this is amazingly exciting year for us. You are all our family, and uh, we think you'll be surprised by some of the things that uh, we're about to speak about. Uh, so we're let's start. So get yourself a cup of tea or a coffee or any beverage and sit back and uh, yeah, let's talk. So as far as a recap of last year is concerned, I don't think we can have a conversation without expressing our concerns and sharing some of our experiences during 2020 with the pandemic and the stresses of the pandemic and the neurological conditions that people have had. Dean, maybe you should start. Yeah, uh, so for us, it's, um, it's a very important topic because we see it on a daily basis in our hospitals. And we'll, we'll tell you a little bit about what we've experienced in the last year. So, and we personally experienced a loss, a massive loss because of this uh, horrible disease. My mother, who was an am amazing human being, one of the most lively, most positive, most proactive human beings you can imagine. Uh, she was a world traveler. She spoke nine languages. She had trained as a couture designer in Paris and painter, you know, played music, all kinds of stuff. And, and most importantly, she was so well connected to the community and to people. <laughs> at 83, she uh, had a party in her home at least two to three times a week. That's right. And uh, she had a, a fall, injured her patella in, in February, I believe. And yes. they, they did a, a surgery that was optional. We said, you know, it's okay, let's, let's get it done right now. She went to the hospital, came out, and within three days had lung involvement and uh, a white out of the lungs. And she went into the hospital. I actually remember the minute that she said goodbye to us. We thought that this is going to be a simple thing. She's going to go in and come out. And, and we thought it was a pneumonia. Pneumonia. And uh, we couldn't see her because that COVID had just started. Had just yes. started. So we couldn't go into the hospitals despite the fact that we're doctors. This was in Orange County. And the first test for COVID came back negative, and so we thought it was nothing. But within a few days, she was comatose. Of course, she was non-responsive, and she passed away without anybody around her. This is uh, this was uh, devastating to all of us, completely unexpected. Uh, but in in retrospect, we know that it was COVID positive. The lung, uh, the CT scans of the lung, the the progression. And the fact that she had no comorbidities, she was a thin person without any other medical problems, Right. very, very healthy. 
and everything looked like COVID. And uh, so we, we personally experienced the loss. And when people say it's overstated, actually it was understated because uh, people like my mother were never diagnosed, but we know by all the parameters that this was definitely COVID. Correct. And uh, since then, it's been a challenging time and we've adapted our studies in beach cities, which is the largest brain health initiative in the country, is um, went online and we were actually well adapted for that. And most of our other studies throughout the country have gone online. How we see patients in Loma Linda, most of the time it's online. In fact, now it's all online. Correct, especially, especially with the, the surge in the of clinic. the cases in exactly. Los Angeles. and in-, in the hospital though, it's it's overwhelming. It is. Uh, I mean, just a month ago, we were on the wards, both of us. And Christmas week, both of us are attendings in the ward which is kind of cool and funny. And uh, we're is. the only neurologists. You were the attending for the general neurology and I was the attending for stroke neurology. And then we have our residents. It's one and of my we, favorite times. Yeah. But uh, the hospital was more than 80% COVID positive. In fact, they were overflowing into the pediatric ward. Yes. And they were actually opening up the gym. Uh, anybody who's been to Loma Linda knows there's an amazing gym. It's not even a gym. It's, a, it's actually a community <clears throat> center, the community Dresden center. center. Yeah. They had it ready to transfer some of the more stable patients there, or perhaps even COVID cases, and it's still ready to be used if the need ever arises. I mean, it can get worse any time because it's, at this point it hasn't gone down much. It's just stabilized Correct. the numbers. I mean, it can overwhelm the system. There were worries of low oxygen levels. Correct. I mean, imagine in California, the richest state in the country, Definitely low, low PPEs. Exactly. Low oxygen. They even had low blood pressure IV medications, which is incredibly strange. It is. But it it, is. there was such a high demand for these medications that we were worried. Yeah. So for us, when people say, oh, COVID is not real or it's really not that bad of a disease. And I tell you, we are not in the payroll of any pharmaceutical company whatsoever. It's we so are, funny that people actually say that. I, it's, it's there's crazy a cash flow coming from the pharmaceutical Where is it? I want industry. a second car. I have a Toyota Sienna, which is falling apart. And <laughs> <laughs> nonetheless, uh, it, it's just bewildering. Just go to your local hospital and just see what's happening. Right. And imagine if this wasn't controlled, what would have happened? To us, it's a little obscene. I lost a family member. So I know that with this talk that we're doing, there we're going to get lots of hate and we're going to get followers that are going to unfollow us. I don't care. We're doctors first. We don't care about followers if it means we're going to compromise our audience. It is real. Let's do our part to curtail it, to make a difference. And it's it can be devastating when you see a person dying short of breath, which I I did with my mother. And and, and from afar, without being able to see, you know, directly, it's it's absolutely devastating. The pain of going through that has completely changed us. Yeah. And in many ways, I think seeing the pain and seeing the distress that doctors and healthcare workers or anyone who was at the front line have experienced, it's making me respect them more. You Absolutely. know that we have- The nurses. The, oh, my oh my goodness. We have friends, uh, physician friends who are on the verge of just giving up. And we've been in conversations with them and it's just really, really overwhelming. Two ICU docs 
Um, we're not giving names away. No. Brilliant people who dedicated their entire life to this. Right. They were so overwhelmed that actually both of them were talking about quitting, you know, uh, taking care of patients in ICU and doing something else, anything else. That's a reality that we have yeah, to address. The burnout is real. Yeah. The burnout is real. But on the other side, we also acknowledge the economic burden, the the the, to the change, the stress. And I will talk. We will talk about the numbers as far as the other factors from stroke, heart attack, and all these other things, as well as depression, anxiety, suicide, substance abuse. All these numbers are also going up. So we have to approach it in a complexity way. I mean, somebody actually said. The divide that we're experiencing in the United States has to do with the fact that people have to accept complexity. And complexity is uncomfortable. But if we all accept complexity, then we'll work towards better understanding that complexity. Instead of each side or whatever side, simplifying it to their lowest denominator of their own silos. Complexity is is disturbing. Complexity is uncomfortable. It is. And it's for some people, it's difficult to be in that state of discomfort for a long time. And, you know, that's why we take refuge in absolutes and finding yes. a specific answer for every question. But I think we should be okay to say, I don't really know. Yeah. I don't and, really know And the we're answer. open to learn, learn Correct. together, uh, not just jump to the answer. And and even on the COVID side, on we definitely think that further research needs to be done across pharmaceuticals. We definitely think that the greater, bigger picture should be taken into consideration, which is the economic burden on people, which causes bankruptcies and depression and anxiety and substance abuse and, and abuse in the families and mm -hmm. all of that, all of that should be taken into consideration. And I don't mean that in a passing manner. The numbers are just scary when it comes to that. Depression, although ironically, in the first phase, both depression and suicide went lower than average. And part of that is complex. People were staying home and they had some extra funding. But in the second wave actually went significantly higher from 8% to 28% in one series and wow. one study. Same thing with suicide and, and substance abuse and abuse. So we must take all of that into consideration. It was a challenge that we all experienced. The way out of that challenge is data, not ideologies, not silos, not groups, but data. And uncomfortable data, sometimes imperfect data, sometimes adaptive data. So for example, when people get angry that, oh, CD said, said this at the beginning, and then they said this, and then, the, well, that was the nature of an evolving knowledge base. That's the nature of an evolving knowledge base. You, we, we didn't even know about this virus and how it was evolved and, and all of that. And of course, when people don't know things, what takes its place is absolutes or a certainty somebody else gives, a conspiracy that somebody else gives. So I think we can all work together by getting a better understanding of the disease, a better understanding of how to re deal with this disease and its greater complexity, which is the, the job market and, and the family structures and, and the stressors and this, this depression, anxiety and everything else. All of that should be, but again, I repeat, the way out is data, not some talking heads, including us. <laughs> we can only say so much about the virus because I'm not a virologist. True. I know the viral, viral, you know, virology a little bit here and there. And I, and I and we rely on experts. Correct. We rely on people who have been trained in that field. I actually don't want to even talk about the virus too much unless I check with a virologist or with the CDC or with an accredited public health department 
to anyone. Correct. And I'm and I'm a physician. I'm in the field. We both have masters in PH and epidemiology, but no, but sometimes we have to rely on others. So with that, some of you are angry with what I said, and some of you guys Hopefully are happy. Not, I think our intention is just information. Really, there's nothing else beside data, and putting that data through scrutiny, arguing absolutely, arguing civil in a civil manner with methodology of argument, with uh, giving veracity and and weight to the data where it needs to be, not making sure that we, you know, push a certain database more than it deserves. I always say. You know, it's not about truth, it's the weight of the truth. Uh, so with that, the reason we are taking this time is because it has consequences. Neurologically, so much of the COVID situation we don't know about. We're not aware of it too much. As far as not just what it does to the patient, we are learning about that, but it's paraphenomenon. You know, the vascular, the immunologic, all these other things that we're seeing, uh, increased rates of strokes. Absolutely. Uh, you had two patients in their 40s, right? Oh, yeah. Um, we are seeing quite a few of stroke patients without any typical vascular risk factors like high blood pressure or cholesterol or diabetes or unhealthy lifestyle. And uh, there has been a surge in cases of neurological manifestations of COVID-19. And again, it's still in its infancy right now. Yeah. We don't have very good idea of why that happens. We know that there are certain biomarkers that go awry. Yeah. For example, in patients who have had strokes, there is hypercoagulability, which means that their blood starts thickening and it starts to clot. And there are so many other manifestations of that too. They get heart attacks, they get clots in, in the vessels in their bodies. And most of the focus has been on making sure that they don't suffer, that their life is preserved. And hopefully we'll have some time to focus and do research on long-term and short-term manifestations of COVID-19. You've actually seen a lot of the, some of that, well, I wouldn't say chronic because it hasn't been very long, but you've seen a potential loss of memory, changes in mental status, uh, short-term memory or recall issues with post-COVID cases, haven't you? Correct, actually, in increased numbers. And I wanna, we're, we're working on potentially writing this up, but we're seeing this. And, and part of it might be, and part of research is to figure out what are the different elements contributing? You know, the confounders. And of course, some of it is stress, some of it is isolation. But could some of this be directly the result of the virus itself right. on the brain? So that must be studied. One of the things that intrigued me is, you know, the loss of sense of smell. Right. So the olfactory bulb is the most direct. You have 12 cranial nerve. Cranial nerve one is olfaction, smell. And... And it's directly connected to the brain. It's one of the direct, in fact, it's one of the most primordial Agreed. senses. Oldest, one uh, of so, the oldest part of the brain too. Correct. Is it, of course, there's literature on, uh, on this, but is it just the bulb external to the brain that's affected or is it going all the way to the brain? Because it's a very direct path. Mm -hmm. And what does that mean? So the, the point of this is not to scare people, is to kind of make us aware of, I guess it does scare people a little bit. So I'm, the that's not the intention. The whole thing is scary, it to is be honest scary. with you. Is that we have to be a little more diligent, aware that there's more complexity, there's more, more we need to know about this. And that's basically uh, what we need to do. There have been some cases, some rare case reports 
which shows that people can have infection of the brain or the layers of the brain. So uh, encephalitis or meningitis, either infectious or after infection, so post-infectious in etiology. And in most patients who have undergone intensive investigation, when they took a sample of their spinal fluid to analyze and see what was going on, they really didn't show any inflammation. And uh, polymerase chain reaction, or PCR, didn't really show SARS-CoV-2 viral DNA in their cerebrospinal fluid. So we're still gathering all of this information to understand, you know, how how is it that the brain gets affected? Is it the virus itself? Is it some of the other biomarkers? But I'm really intrigued to find out how it's affecting cognition in general, because we have seen some younger individuals who have had difficulty going back to their jobs because yeah. of the infection affecting their memories. We haven't even come to the point where we can accurately assess all these other paraphenomena. Right. And then you have the neuromuscular complications, which include diseases like Guillain-Barre syndrome, which is a muscle disorder that is characterized by pain and uh, well, sensation, sensation loss and weakness in their in their legs. It starts from the lower extremities and it kind of creeps up to the upper part of the body. And then they have these vague symptoms where you have general myalgias, your serum creatine kinase goes up. So there's such a huge spectrum of the consequences of this virus. And I think all neurologists and neuroscientists are busy gathering data to put it together to understand it better. And I think we'll learn more and more in the next few months. Correct. But nonetheless, uh, the key is to avoid it. The key is if we can get this vaccine right. on board. It to as brings many us back to prevention. Prevention. The vaccine is effective. Do we know very long-term data? No. Do we know uh, short-term data? Yes. So in research, you have phase one, phase two, phase three, phase four. Phase three, usually people, phase three means that the drug can go, if this, this passes, it means that it can go into the market. Phase four is after it's been in the market for a long time, you're capturing data and, and even then you get some really interesting data. Mm -hmm. And sometimes actually the data that you couldn't get in phase three, uh, but you never stop a drug because you think that at phase four, you might see something because, uh, so we're putting the drug out and then we're, we'll see what the population data shows. So far, about 4 million people have been vaccinated, maybe more Today, by now. Yes. Yeah, probably more by now. And hopefully more will be as well. And that will give us, especially if we reach more than 100 million or 150 million, we'll reach the kind of numbers that will give protection. Right. I got both doses. Yes. Um, and I feel well. Well, so far. the second one made you a little uncomfortable. <laughs> yeah. The, the first one, I didn't feel anything except for just a little bit of a sore arm. I mean, I felt it, but it wasn't terribly bad. But the second one, I had a good reaction. I had a little bit of a fever and myalgias, some rigors. I was, it was kind of a happy pain. I was happy because I knew that my body was building really, immunity. Aisha, you didn't look like happy pain when you were happy. <laughs> That's but, just for, but, but let's say for it was the podcast happy people. I was, yeah, I was, was happy. Yes, I didn't yes. look happy, but I was happy inside. Happy no, I, I understand. <laughs> I knew that I was mounting uh, <clears throat> an some antibodies and, and an immune response. Correct. And I got my first one. The second one I was supposed to get on Tuesday I missed it. Last I had to week, do something yeah. else. And here's the thing: there's there the second one when you're getting it. You ha there's a fine window. You you have to hit that window. Otherwise, now I have to go somewhere else this coming week to get the second one. 
nonetheless, we're excited. It's an mRNA vaccine, meaning that it's not a killed vaccine. It's not a part of the virus. It's not a killed virus. It's actually an mRNA component of it. So at least ostensibly in many ways, it seems safe. The elements involved are quite safe. You can read it yourself. What are the right. things involved? And then the rest comes after that. Let's hope that we do the right things um, in the world where we don't create any more of these viruses. I hope so. Which we think a major part of it is uh, how we, uh, our relationship with food, uh, the, these massive petri dishes that we've created and, and animal, you know, open markets, as well as the, the wet markets uh, and the factory farming. Factory farms. Yeah, they these are petri play dishes. A huge I mean, role. Anybody who's done biochemistry or, or molecular biology or anything re recognize what, how you create large amount of viruses or bacteria in petri dishes. And if you have enough of an organism, uh, enough of a substrate where the organism can grow, they'll, it will grow and then it will actually evolve especially if it's reproducing rapidly. Well, these factory farms and open markets are perfect venue for that. So in any case, let's move on to the next thing. Right. I actually wanted you to speak about what you have encountered in your clinic when it comes to dementia patients. How are they dealing with this pandemic? I, I think the most devastated population are those that have a diagnosis of Alzheimer's or dementia because especially if it's mild dementia, they are in these nursing homes or nursing facilities where they're isolated. They've been isolated for months and months. They're at greater risk for multiple reasons, comorbidities and everything else. They're at greater risk because they experience stress more, anxiety more. Some of them are experiencing hallucinations and all these symptomology. And then not being able to see loved ones alone by themselves. I mean, just imagine that suffering. It's horrific. So I'm actually devastated by that situation. Yeah. When I, every patient I see, I want to give them a hug and you know, uh, make sure that they have people that call them regularly. I see the suffering. I see the quiet suffering. Mm -hmm. I don't want this podcast to become so, so sad that people start, No, but it's but reality. It is reality. I mean, this is something that you and I see in clinic all the time. Yeah. And a lot of these lovely people who are dealing with Alzheimer's disease alone in nursing homes. See, the problem is they forget what is going on too, right? But because the of your memory don't. problems. Mi yeah, but the mild ones don't. But some of them who have, you know, moderate to severe ones, they forget what's going on. And so they are in constant state of anxiety. Yeah. And it's as if they're reliving that state of anxiety over and over again. But for individuals who have mild cognitive impairment because of their ages, they've been separated from their children, their grandchildren, a lot of them tend to have some problems connecting with everyone. You know, we all rely on social media, yeah. on Zoom and Skype and um, just different interfaces on the internet to connect with other individuals. And for those who don't have the resources or who are never used to it, it's been a huge challenge, hasn't it? Uh, I don't understand the divide. You know, they say that don't bring these kind of things into any conversation. No, I, I'm not bringing it to the, I'm saying, I think if we all unite around the concept of extending the love, it sounds so soft and, you know, <laughs> <laughs> but I think there should be a national movement. Everybody should call somebody once a day, a grandmother, a grandfather, a, an elderly in a nursing home, somebody once a day, 10 minutes. Oh my goodness, what a movement that would be. It would be amazing. 
It would, and I think it has happened to a certain extent. I, it has. I, I, I'm not sure. I think we should get this moving going, <laughs> this movement going. I think you're absolutely right. One thing that can bring us together is the idea of just making an effort and taking care of people who are in a vulnerable position. One I think it brings the best of us as well as just brighten up their day and help them thrive. I know that you and I are neurologists and neurosci- neuroscientists and people expect us to talk about, you know, antidepressant, anti-Parkinsonian medicine, anti-depression. No, a call. Right, just a phone call. Nothing better for depression, anxiety, and, and loneliness, and sadness, and even a cognitive issues than a call from a loved one. That's so true. I think that should be a national movement. <laughs> call it a Sherzai movement. Let's do this. Let's call <laughs> a loved one. Uh, and I that would be, the, uh, to my patients, that I see on a daily basis, that would be the biggest gift. Uh, the biggest antidepressant would be just that. So... That's my contribution. I, I love hope. it. No, I I remember posting about it, you and I posting about it a while ago, and somebody said, well, what about those who are alone and they don't have a loved one? I said, adopt one. Yes, <laughs> there, oh, beautiful. There's so many people who need connection. There's so many people who need someone to speak to them. Yeah. Such a powerful thing, taking some time to speak to someone, looking at them, or not even if, if you're not in the vicinity, but just speaking with them and listening to them and allowing them to express themselves and for you to just be there and be present. It's a gift. It is, it is. Okay, so that's a movement we're gonna start. I love it. I'm writing this down fact, right now. We're gonna post about that okay. and, and get that moving. Beautiful. Yeah, so what else is there and uh, what happened in 2020? It, it was such an overwhelming, COVID was such an overwhelming presence that everything everything else paled in comparison. Agreed, but. agreed. We didn't have any conferences, physical conferences no. at least. And anything and everything that happened in 2020, whether it was a neurological conference or a cardiology conference, everybody and everything was focused on the manifestations of COVID-19. But I think 2021 will be a fantastic year because we've learned from our mistakes we're open, we're connected. One thing that I'm seeing quite often is actually, actually people are more connected to other individuals across the globe and having conversations of how to bring each other together on the same platform and deal with our problems and deal with the difficulties of our daily lives. So I'm very encouraged and I hope that some by sometime in 2021, we will have less of an issue well, I think that's quite a jump, but less of an issue with COVID-19. I'm just hoping. I definitely think so. So let's talk about 2021. So I hope another thing that we learned about this disease is the concept of comorbidities. We learned that those who have comorbidities are at greater risk. What are those comorbidities? Smoking, obesity, and obesity not directly, but indirectly as well. Maybe even directly, we, we need more data on that but definitely high blood pressure, cholesterol, asthma, all these other sim diseases that create greater risk. Right. And by the way, th- we always say that we definitely don't think that there's, we should always be about empowerment. So with that in mind, prevention is again, highlighted. Signif- it should be even more highlighted. The, you know, We always say that about 100%, close to 100% of the healthcare funds go to disease, at the point of disease. Right. 
It is important, extremely important. When somebody has a heart attack, we need the procedures, the surgeries to take care of that. We need the medications. We, as opposed to some people, we are not against anti-medications uh, for cholesterol, medications for diabetes, medications. That would be absolutely ridiculous. Mm -hmm. We are for those medicines in the acute phase, but for prevention in the longer phase. So it's critical to kind of focus on that as well, to move healthcare 80% towards prevention. Right, agreed. And nothing highlighted that more than COVID. Very true. In many communities, but especially the low-income communities, the low socioeconomic, low, and, and why it's low, because of access. Public health is about access, access, access. Access to information, access to resources, access to professionals. So that's what we need to do. We have to promulgate spread the message about prevention and spread the resources, create environments and resources that people can have preventive measures that can have the environment of healthy living. Right. And some of that is not difficult. Some of that is just adapting the home a little here and there. We, uh, in our posts and social media, we kind of put silly things like bands in the living room that's for exercise because a gym is expensive. And more important that none of us go there. Well, very few of us. Uh, that's why they oversell the, those gyms. They oversell it, meaning that they know that everybody who buys the the membership, membership that they don't come on a regular basis. Uh, and 80% don't. So the home is the place to, to make it a, a place of exercise and care and prevention. So prevention is, is the key. Very and true. 2021 should be even a bigger focus for prevention. Absolutely. And now that we've spent a lot of time at home modifying our homes rather than seeking health outside of home we've gotten, is the focus. We've gotten used to our homes. Very true. Yeah. Yes. I know that initially we're going to just run out of the house for a while. <laughs> Do you but, think so? But when you come back, <laughs> let's build that that haven, that uh, gym, health spa, for sleep, for, for nutrition, for exercise, for everything. We think that what you do at your home can reduce your chronic diseases by 80% true, or more. True, I'm biased, but I think everybody needs to learn how to cook at home. I think it should be one of the tenets of, of health. I wonder why, <laughs> no, I, I, but I definitely agree with you. We, you're in control. Yeah. I mean, of, of course, when I mean, you, there, when you there cook. are wonderful resources and wonderful mm -hmm. restaurants and places that can provide you with the right kind of foods and meals. But I think being empowered and knowing what goes in your body and deciding what you put in your body is extremely important. And like you said, when we say prevention, you know, sometimes it kind of falls flat, but prevention essentially means how do you take care of yourself to withstand disease? Correct. To be resilient, to be strong, not just physically, but mentally. And who wouldn't want that? Exactly. So uh, I agree with you. I think 2021 is the year of building resilience. The second thing is, I think we learned that we are so connected with each other. We've heard these, <laughs> these statements before, but we experienced them right. in 2020. Mm -hmm. We're community-driven beings. We're connected beings. We're social organisms. And let's take that to a functional level. Again, first, let's start by calling the elderly who are isolated still and, and support, love. But once we get past this COVID or start turning the corner, 
it's important to focus on our communities as places of health and prevention. Right. That's been our work for the last 15 years, Aisha yes. and I. Uh, and we think that's the most important place to create healthcare, not the clinic, not the hospital. That's a point of disease. That's where disease should be addressed. But prevention is in homes, at work, and in the communities. We tell people, invite us to your communities. We'll come and help out of our own funds, out of our own resources with you, or if we, whatever we raise, it's gonna be in that community. Take us to your work spaces. We will help create that environment because what we would do in the communities is exponentially more effective than what we do in the clinic. In a way, what we do in the clinic is a little selfish, isn't it? We love the interaction with the patients. Yeah. But we are way more effective in the communities. Right. One conversation with the community, by the way, the way we work in the communities, it's it's a CBPR model. CBP, um, uh, CBPR is community-based participatory research and CBPA is a community-based participatory action, meaning that whatever is decided is decided with the given community's resources, with the given community's unique experiences, culture, relationships, together taking all and, and wisdom, applying it according to that community's needs and, and abilities and applying that in a way that will stick. And Otherwise that, it doesn't work. And that's a validated way of making a change, a positive change in any community. It's the only way and right. it's been shown. So the year 2021 is gonna be bring healthcare to your home, to your work and to your communities. And please involve us. We would love to be involved in doing that nationally and internationally. Hopefully we can travel around the world and by then, by middle of the year, and we can come to your communities anywhere in the world. That would uh, be a dream come that's, true. That's a dream for us. It's actually, <laughs> it, it, it would be wonderful. So, uh, and we think it would be effective because we will, that will bring a paradigm shift to healthcare. Right, I completely agree. I think, like you said, the impact is is high. And I think also in certain communities, unfortunately, because of lack of access, um, lack of resources, people who are in need or who are most vulnerable, they never get healthcare at the right time. It's almost too late or they basically don't even bother getting any help anymore. So choosing individuals from that community to be health ambassadors Correct. is the best way to move forward. And you and I are involved in a couple of projects. Well, first of all, we're, we're conducting probably the largest community the largest. research in the country at the beach cities, uh, which is Manhattan, Redondo, and Hermosa Beach. We're looking at the impact of lifestyle on brain health. And our goal is prevention of cognitive impairment over three years. And it's been amazing. Like you said earlier, we've done everything on Zoom. We have cooking classes. We have exercise instructions and get togethers and connecting with individuals and we're hoping to start something like this in other cities. Um, we have a faith-based well. initiative in Correct. churches, synagogues, and other uh, faith communities where, because it's a perfect place, there's an infrastructure there and, and population. So if your churches want to be involved, your faith communities want to be involved, please contact us through contact at teamsharesi.com. Right. So that's that's what we're doing. It's exciting. And we think uh, this will be paradigm shifting. And then last but not least, 
is something very exciting that will be announced soon. And uh, it's our book. Right. Our next book. So our second book is going to come out soon. It's essentially an extension of the first book, The, the Alzheimer's How. Solution, which was published in 2017. And our second book is called The 30-Day Alzheimer's Solution. And it's focused on the how. So a lot of recipes, a um, lot of ideas of how to incorporate stress management, better sleep hygiene, and cognitive activities in one's life for better brain health. And I know that the title Alzheimer's is on the cover, but it's not just for disease prevention. It's about promotion of brain health. Correct. Because it's a spectrum. It is a spectrum. It is a spectrum. And, and the beauty of this is, is that it takes you through a month and during that month, you will learn the habits. It's about creating the habits of a healthy living. It's not a diet. It's not a, a silly little program. It's a life building program. The other thing that we will do with this is for those that this is a little bit of a marketing thing, which we're not very good at. <laughs> yeah, two neurologists. Uh, but um, a one month program as a promotion. So meaning that those people who pre-sign, pre-order, they will actually be invited to a closed group for a month where we will, uh, first of all, they'll get lots of videos, educational videos, downloadables, resources, but they will also get us for uh, multiple times. In fact, on a daily basis, uh, they'll get motivationals and then an introduction talk to get the process started for those who've uh, got the book and have, uh, they're gonna start reading it and, and living it. Then at the end of each week, they'll have question and answer session with us, one hour or more. And at the end, a summary of what this meant and how to take it forward. But a lot more than that, they'll have uh, uh, speakers that speak to sleep, to different uh, disorders. I'm really excited it's about that. It's an amazing program that's actually more than, uh, you know, several hundred, $700, but we're giving it away for free to get people to start this path. But you have to get the book to get enrolled. And I think that it's going to actually help you inculcate this and incorporate this into your life. Not as a, just another book that goes on a shelf, but a book that's lived. That's a good one. Oh, there it is. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. We're going to live was, the book with you. That was the reason you. why we wanted to do the one month program so Correct. that we could live the book with yes. everyone. The program is going to start in April, beginning of April and end at the end of April, of course. But you have to pre-order the book and then uh, we are going to experience it together, live it together. We're definitely going to put some links at the bottom of this uh, show and the show notes to show you some of the details and where you can get more information about the program as well as where you can get access to the book. But that's what we've been busy with this last year in 2020. It was a crazy whirlwind of a year, but the best memories I have is Dean and I sitting on the couch with our coffees and the kids sitting next to us and Obi, our dog, and us just going back and forth and refining the research and on the whiteboards on the on the whiteboards all over the house and making the language palatable. We're really proud of this book because we held ourselves quite accountable to make sure that the research was accurate. But it's not even about accuracy of research. It's about does it really mean anything? Would it make a difference in people's lives? And if Can so, they apply how? It to their life? Right. How do they apply it? What does it mean? What does it mean to be cognitively active, yeah. right? Or what does it mean to eat better? And uh, it's not restrictive. It's um, 
I, I think it's quite welcoming. Wow, I talked a lot about that. I'm really, really and, excited. And the recipes are absolutely <laughs> oh, amazing. Yeah. Aisha did an amazing job uh, with the recipes. And, and you. you'll see the pictures are absolutely gorgeous. One of the best photographers in the world actually came here for seven days. It's, it's absolutely gorgeous. I have really to uh, speak to that. It really is. Um, we can't wait for you guys to get a copy and stay connected with us in the group, in the program. And, uh, and and by the way, after you're done with the program, you're not done with us. Uh, you'll be you're stuck with us. You're stuck with us, and it's going to be a, <laughs> a, a, a group, close group that you'll you'll have us at least once a month or so, uh, uh, where we continue the journey. Right. So uh, this is going to be a fun year. We want from you guys to tell us what topics you want to hear. Right. Um, that's important to us. We took a long pause at the end of 2021 because there was just... 2020. I'm sorry, yes. We took a long pause at the end of um, 2020 because there was just a lot going on, working at the hospital, taking care of family, writing the book. But we would love, love, love to get some feedback on what are some of the things that you're interested in so we can speak. And who you would like us to talk to. Right. We do have our list of amazing authors, scientists, artists musicians, uh, community workers, social workers, and just lovely individuals who we will have conversation with. I can't wait for you guys to hear them. Um, but if there are any particular topics that you're interested, please let us know. We'd love to speak about it. And with that, I will end this podcast. It was so lovely hanging out with you all. I hope you all have a wonderful day and please take care of yourselves and we'll talk to you soon. And here's to an amazing, positive, proactive, powerful, epic 2021. <laughs>